Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz, and I'm here um, for our inaugural podcast with a guest who is a lifelong learner and has, through her in her own words, uh, led a career that has been uh, rooted more in discovery than in planning. So I wanted to start there. Karen Eamon, hello. Hello, John. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So let's start with that. How has your career evolved? So really through happenstance more than anything else, like people either plan or they don't. And and I didn't. After university, I found myself pursuing what was interesting to me at the time. And then one thing just led to another and different interests came along the way and different opportunities came up and I followed kind of like a ball of yarn and chasing after it. <laughs> and you've been working in education and affiliated industries or areas for how long now? So in and out, I would say it started really in the early 1990s when I decided I wanted to do international development and not having a degree in international development or any experience, the way that made sense for me to do that was to volunteer with an NGO as an English teacher and go and live and work in a developing country. And I ended up getting a placement with Voluntary Service Overseas, which is a big European NGO, and being placed in China. So I started off by teaching ESL in China for two years. From ESL and then into training as a facilitator and doing youth facilitation training and then adult facilitation training and then uh, working at a community college here in Toronto where I am. First I was running a tutoring program and then got a job teaching course which I really really loved called Global Citizenship that is taught at this particular community college and which is essentially a social justice course. And that I felt kind of combined my loves of teaching and international development and social issues. How has that informed your kind of thinking on the effect of neuropsychology and therapy on education versus your study of theory, which I know you've, you've done extensively as well? So that's also intermingled with training as a psychotherapist for several years here. As I was doing that and I was moving into a stage where I was about to write a major thesis on some area of psychotherapy, I realized that my interest was in how we learn and how that relates to being in a psychotherapeutic relationship. And that was because I didn't know what the connection was going into it. And really what I discovered is they're actually one and the same. Like learning theory is human development theory. They are one and the same. Because what does it mean to develop as humans? It means to learn. So learning therapy came first for you and education came second. Learning therapy? No, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Learning theory. When you were going to school for therapy, you, your, folk, your interest was first the psychotherapy and then that led to you moving into education. No, 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 actually the opposite. So I've been doing okay. lots of formal and informal education and then went into psychotherapy 
not so long ago. I started 2010 and finished 2016. Got it. Not long ago, did that training and was interested in connecting those two areas of interest. That's what's fascinating to me because, and this is what I, why I love that our subject, that as we're getting more information from practicing therapists about what works in terms of how the human brain acquires information and more than information, skills and experiences and life, all the important things in life, how and can should education change? It seems to me like you're right at the cutting edge of that. One of the things that's happening, I don't know how, how long ago this started, the world of psychotherapy is neurosciences is coming in to play a role. And it's kind of like the way Einstein brilliantly predicted things that science is only proving physically now, like decades later. It's kind of like that. There were theorists, learning theorists and, and human development theorists who were identifying and naming concepts that in some cases, I'm not saying this is the only thing, but in some cases, neuroscience is actually physically proving now that we can map the brain and know so much more about the brain than we did 100 years ago. So an example is there was this concept, and I, I'm sorry, I can't exactly date it like when it was, but I, I believe it was this guy named Winnicott came up with this idea of mirroring and the importance of mirroring. So in other words, in the mother-child relationship, it's important for the child, even infant, to have her emotions mirrored by the mother so that there is a connection made. So that term mirroring has been used for decades and decades. And then quite later, scientists discovered something that's called informally, I, I assume, I'm not sure, because I'm not a neuroscientist, mirror neurons. And what they've seen is that when we are witnessing someone else going through an emotional state, that same part of of our brain, the witnesser, is lighting up as if that were happening to us. Mm -hmm. Those are called mirror neurons that perform that function. So we knew the importance of mirroring in theory, and now we know the neuroscience backs that up. Part of what started this conversation between us was uh, attachment theory. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when my partner, who is, was at the time an elementary school music teacher, he was the one who introduced the idea of attachment to me, maybe, I don't know, seven years ago. He didn't introduce it as attachment theory. He, he used the term attachment disorder. And he said, John, you don't understand. These students I'm working with in the center of Chicago, a large number of them have attachment issues. And because they have attachment issues, they're 10, 11, 12 years old, and they have all kinds of behavioral problems that are way beyond the scope of the school to fix or even begin to address. Right. And those are due to attachment. So that was kind of how it was introduced to me. And then when we talked, you kind of opened up the possibility that this idea of attachment which I think is tied to this idea of mirror neurons, although maybe you can explain how, but th that this idea of attachment might be a theory that is kind of something accessible for everyone in education, teachers, administrators, people, you know, operators, and maybe it's not. So can you kind of draw those links together for me? What Ted was calling the attachment disorder is when attachment goes wrong. 
you can have a an attachment disorder. And there's a spectrum of degrees. And I also want to say that it is important to realize that it's not operating in a vacuum. Like there can be other things such as learning disabilities and, and emotional disabilities and just other factors coming into play. But attachment is essentially it was identified in just around the 40s, like during the Second World War. This guy named John Bowlby was interested in looking at orphans and orphanages who had been separated from their families due to the war. And what happened as a result of not having a primary caregiver or how they were managed in orphanages and dealt with and, and what resulted. So he started to identify attachment and attachment disorder. And then he worked with this other psychologist of the day, uh, Mary Ainsworth, who did some groundbreaking field research where she devised an experiment and did it over many years in many different contexts and cultural environments as well, like around the world, looking at how children reacted to their mother and to strangers. And she devised this thing called the strange situation. And what is so interesting about the strange situation is it's a very complicated experiment or test that usually they're, they're children around one year old, approximately one, one and a half about around there. And the child is put through a series of situations with and without the mother and with and without a stranger in this playroom with toys and things. And Ainsworth identified that it, it wasn't so much how the child behaved when the mother left the room. It was how the child behaved when the mother came back. And I always found that really interesting. So that's how she identified these three different styles of attachment. There's a secure attachment, which is what apparently the majority of people have. But if you work in psychotherapy, it feels like it's the minority <laughs> of people. <laughs> right. Or if you come from a dysfunctional right. family yourself, right. <laughs> it feels like a minority. Anyway, apparently right. it's the majority. Uh, then she <laughs> identified two forms of insecure attachment, anxious avoidant and anxious resistant. Okay. In one of them, in the anxious avoidant, when the mother comes back, the child doesn't doesn't want to make contact, doesn't want to be with the mother, and just kind of shuts down. Yes. In the resistant, and it's sometimes called ambivalent, anxious ambivalent, the child goes back and forth between distress and comfort, distress and comfort, wanting the mother and pushing the mother away or the primary caregiver. And then another person came in, Mary Main came in a few decades later and identified a third insecure attachment called disorganized. And that's when the child is in just in total chaos. And that is from a completely dysfunctional and no attachment foundation, dysfunctional environment. 
there are these different ways of looking at attachment and different things that can be connected with how our attachment schema works and doesn't work and how that plays out as an adult and how it plays out as a parent. Like many theorists have worked with this foundation that Bowlby started with and developed it. So you've written about John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, Mary Main, Peter Fonagy, mm-hmm. and they le- how do they all lead up to David Wallen? Wallen, who I also cite a lot in this paper, is one of the main books that I used in in my paper was his attachment in psychotherapy. And he goes through and gives a really clear, understandable and accessible summary of the history of attachment theory and the different theorists and what they've contributed to the topic. And so I used, just used his book a lot because he covered everyone and he was just also very readable. Most of them are not. Sure, 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 sure. It's accessible. All right. So give me the takeaway. So what's your, what's your decision? Is attachment theory important for all educators to know and apply or not? That brings me to the other book that I used as a major resource in this paper, which is called The Social Neuroscience of Education. And that's by this American, he's a therapist, but he's also a neuroscientist. And his name is Louis Cozzolino. And Cozzolino is interested in how the brain is a part of all of these interactions. So he connected attachment theory to what is actually happening in the brain with those mirror neurons, for example, and with the fight or flight reflex, which happens in the amygdala and the hippocampus part of the brain, when that area is not functioning perfectly well, you can have phobias, irrational phobias, where you're terrified of something because your amygdala isn't soothed quickly enough to say, no, that isn't that isn't a a threat to your safety and your life. It's okay, and you're okay. He looks at all of these different parts of the brain and sees how it relates to healthy and unhealthy attachment schema. What he says, and he's very interested in education. He's written a few books on education as well. What he says is that basically. When a teacher starts the first day of class in the beginning of a school year, the teacher is faced with 20, 25, 30, 35 Uh different little attachment (laughs) cases. Mm -hmm. And everyone brings their own kind of unique Mm -hmm. level of attachment, secure or insecure. And Mm -hmm. he argues that if a teacher can be aware of and sensitive to particularly the insecure modes of attachment and what type of insecure attachment they have, then they can soothe the stress level of the student. And what he, uh, Cozzolino, has done through examining research that has been done is that there's a, a space of stress where learning can be effective and it's low to moderate. If you have no stress, then you may not have enough maybe motivation to get engaged in the learning. And if you have too much stress, more than moderate stress, then you'll just be blocked and and cannot learn. Those are the different types of attachment issues that you characterize in the paper as burnout, performance anxiety, 
boredom. Yeah, exactly. So you can imagine a child who is experiencing a lot of day-to-day -day stresses just by not feeling safe mm -hmm. at home or whatever. Like attachment is about safety. So if you're not feeling safe at home or outside the home, then you're not able to lower your stress level and be able to focus on the learning. So does the teacher take on the role of the of the primary attacher or attach or provide a new source of attachment or is it somehow a proxy attachment? I don't exactly know the answer to that, but uh, one of the articles that I shared with you was that article that argued against even thinking about attachment in the classroom. Right. So let's talk about that. So that writer was saying there's no point. The teacher's going to get a new group of students every year and you have abandonment because those those students will not see that teacher perhaps after they leave their classroom and uh, it's not that important. Not that it's not important. It's not the role of the teacher to take on that that primary attachment figure. Right. You mentioned that Kozolnia refers to some of this being tribal. Oh, yeah. And the word jumped out at me. And I just wanted to see if that jumped out at you as well and and why. I mean, it jumps out for me for obvious reasons. It's such a buzzword these days. Um, yes. That, I, that I, I thought it was really interesting that it was in a paper that you wrote a few years ago. Yeah, I found that interesting too. And as I was starting this research, I was talking to a cousin of ours who is an elementary school teacher teacher and telling her, oh, there's this book I'm reading. It's all about tribal education. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all about that. <laughs> so she was already aware of it. As I read about it and learned about it, it made sense to me. So what Cosolino does, he gives a really superficial summary of the evolution of the brain. It's very, very simple, but that's what I like about it. It's very, it's very understandable. So at first we were, you know, as early, early humans, or I don't know what you would even call us at that stage. We were in just nuclear groups and then groups got bigger. So when groups started to get bigger, maybe because it made sense, it was safer or whatever, we could protect ourselves against all sorts of wild things, our brains got larger in order to manage a more complex social interaction. This complex brain took longer to develop because it was more complex. So children had a longer dependency period on their caretaker. I think we stay with our parents the longest of any creature don't we? Of course. Does that sound right no, to you? I would, I'm making I mean, that up, maybe. I mean, you know, I think you can. <laughs> you would agree yeah, with you that. You can find plenty of examples against it, but I think, on the whole, I think that's a fair, a fair assessment of modern society. Yeah, largely we're staying in somewhere between 16 and 45 with our parents, right? Correct. Uh, yeah. So as children were needing a longer period with their parents, they were more dependent on this attachment. Well, he doesn't use attachment at this point. They're just more dependent at this stage for a longer period of time. Right. So they needed uh, longer caretaking. Right. Now, these larger groups also led to the development of language because we needed to interact more with different people and developed language sounds, gestures yes. were not adequate. So language starts coming in. And that in complex social structure actually leads to 
oral and written form of language that is more complex and then that in turn results in the brain cortex growing. Now, the combination of language and culture facilitated the growth of recorded history and shared knowledge and technology. So you can see we're getting more and more complex. Then these cultural developments led to larger groups, which required even more complex brains. So it's kind of like this cycle of complex, complex social structures to complex brain. And the last point he makes is that secondary social instincts developed beyond the primitive instincts. And what he means by this is primitive instincts are keeping safe from threats of danger and death, taking care of the basic uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter, food, those things. And then the secondary social instincts are things like abstract concepts. So for example, religion, nationality, ideology. So you can see that those abstract concepts are making our social structures even more complicated. I just have a little quote here from Cosolino. So being able to grasp these abstractions meant that we that humans could move past, and here's a quote, immediate experiences and circumstances, end of quote, in order to create affiliations with individuals and groups outside the small tribe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the evolution of the brain. And in today's environment, we could say that that social structure includes teachers, of course. Sure. Uh, children spend sure. at least a whole academic year and usually between six or eight hours a day, often in, in elementary school at least, with one person, you can see how that bond and that connection can be very important. Now, secure attachment is also about knowing that a relationship can end and you will still be okay. Like it's, it's part of another psychological term is ego strength. This is a Freudian term where you are okay on your own, even after your parents die, or even after you move away from, from them, you can still be okay on your own because you build that strength inside of you. So Cozzolino is making no argument. It's a permanent damage that it's actually, that there's, it's pliable. I think he would say that most things are pliable, maybe not everything, but sure. most things are pliable because of neuroplasticity. I mean, there are things that are damaged in the brain that do not regenerate that for sure. There's no doubt about that disease and things like that can happen in the brain. I think he would argue that there's so much that is plastic in the brain, and not only Cosolino, like any neuroscientist would argue, that there is always room for making some kind of change. So from a therapist's perspective, are is are you seeing and are you hearing about more attachment issues being prevalent in students these days is it just more diagnosed is it more is it even is it even below the level of being diagnosed and being something that you know it just provides a valuable education approach or a priority for people i would say that you might know more about this than me like i'm not in the education system in the formal education system now so i think it's not being talked about but maybe it is what do you think 
I think that you don't hear, I mean, the majority of educators, I think, would say this is in the realm of the social workers and psychologists, that this is not something that I'm trained to do and would be able to right. manage if I did. But if somebody comes to me and says, hey, this kid has an individualized you know, education plan that requires a certain type of accommodation based on a attachment issue, I would understand that and be able to act on that. I don't know that most educators would say that they that they see attachment and that they, you know, they themselves, I don't know, diagnose it or even notice it. But I think they would be able to respond to it if they were given if, if it were kind of made a little actionable for a regular classroom. At the same time, I hear the term much more now than I've ever heard it before. And I'm finding a, a very interesting coincidence between the emergence of the term and the use of it with the tribalism that we're seeing more broadly in culture, the term coming up there as a, a way of saying in or out uh, and identifying, tying with a group. It's, it's, it's a metaphor from the perspective that I'm seeing it at, not anything psychological and not something that's actionable in terms of uh, education operations or anything like that. But I'm hearing it. It, it does seem like an interesting correlation <laughs> in time, if nothing else. But I don't know that I'd say, you know, I haven't had a lot of conversations with psychologists and social workers in the schools to to, you know, kind of do a survey of whether it's coming up more or coming up less. But it, it makes sense uh, for, for me in certain ways just because of the of the lack of connection that a lot of kids have with, uh, you know, or the way they're looking for connection now. And certainly that you can't ignore digital technologies and the impact that they've had on how um, how children connect with their world. But I don't have a clear answer for, you know, I don't have a clear answer for, for what it is. That's why I'm kind of, I like that we're having this conversation and I'm kind of curious what, you know, what, what, what interests you about it? I think what's interesting is that, well, first of all, I would say that I imagine most student teachers are not being educated about attachment. Do you think that that's probably still true today? I think that's probably accurate. Most teachers have a class in educational psychology, and I'd be curious to know whether this has made the cut of what they're exposed to in that one semester, one year class uh, during a teacher training program. But um, I've got to think it's not very much. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear about those pressing items you've been wanting to bring up. Okay, we're back. So, Kara, you had a couple of pressing items that you've been waiting to bring up. So I have a couple of things, and I, I want to make sure I touch on them. One is about how attachment is being viewed as a psychological or, or a psychotherapeutic approach, like attachment therapy is something that people practice now. But also the, so I'll, I'll um, circle around back to that, remind me, but attachment in terms of learning it as an education tool, I think we're not there yet. And I think people maybe are unfamiliar with how this could benefit a classroom situation. One example might be uh, working with and identifying a student who has uh, trouble learning. I mean, a, a teacher is not there to diagnose psychological issues, but a teacher can certainly identify a child who's having trouble learning. And 
maybe knowledge of attachment theory can be a tool that they can bring to bridging that gap, helping that student bridge that gap, whatever it is. It's, it's certainly not the only thing that they can use to help them bridge that gap, but it could be another way of communicating with the child, looking at the child and thinking about the child oh, maybe this this does look like anxious avoidant attachment and what I know about anxious avoidant attachment and what can I do to help bridge that for the student. The, the other piece that I wanted before I go back to it being used in psychotherapeutic environments was that the word tribal, what's interesting to me is that I'm also noticing that concept, maybe not that word, but I think it's the other word that's being used is community. So I think I've been hearing more about how having community is so important for the elderly and especially elderly with dementia. And I've just been hearing that uh, this is anecdotally in news pieces or reading about it and how important it is for the elderly to stay engaged in social interactions with community that isolation can actually accelerate dementia or other, you know, elderly issues. So that's interesting too, that, you know, community is important yes. through our whole lives. And this, the word tribal, I think may be um, the word of, of the day, you know, the flavor du jour, but, but it's the same concept, you know, being in community, being in groups, working in groups. And I remember as, as a child in, not was it elementary school i can't remember what my i think the first grade for me was grade seven so yeah. middle school for me was the first time that our desks were arranged in groups and not in rows mm -hmm. and i remember thinking oh this is different this is oh yeah so interesting are, you know, and it was really a little bit scary strategies for but also it was also frankly, good for me too do you, do you remember that is they go to school every day and they improvise often improvise a lot of what they're doing if not the majority of what they're doing they certainly come in with plans uh, and they come in with uh, you know the best uh, the best laid plans but at the same time they improvise a lot and one of the things i think that they've embraced certainly has been the active classroom that where where students are moving away from kind of you know certainly right. away from from rows and desks and lectures um and uh, uh, um you know and, and kind of the traditional classroom but i think that the that they at the same time they're you know they struggle yeah. with um they struggle with integrating theories that that don't provide clear actionable steps for them to um you know for for them to take and run with you know and this is also kind of one of my ongoing complaints about schools generally which is that people live, people work especially in in the more refined traditional schools people exist in such silos that they don't take responsibility for the holistic experience of the child which is inevitably you know the most valuable thing that a teacher provides even when they're trying not to because they are connecting with kids and when you talk to people 30 years later mm. about their experience in school they don't talk about a particular lesson or a particular strategy but they sure do talk about a particular teacher um so i think that there's a lot of um and how they made them feel so i think that th that's why i mean i you know even even yeah. even for even for the those unwittingly engaging in this i think they're all everybody's and engaging how they made them feel um, you know i do think it's 
incredibly valuable for a teacher to take the time or or quite frankly a principal um to take the time to understand how these you know social emotional issues impact the classroom You just made me think again about the article that was saying there's no point in learning about attachment because it's not going to really help teachers. One of the arguments of the author was that teachers are still going to do all the things that they should do, give clear and direct boundaries and guidance and, you know, objective criticism and all of those things that the writer was saying, I totally agreed with. Yes, the, these are good best practices. These are best practices for any teacher. And there may be nothing in addition that a teacher might do differently, but there might be something different that a teacher could internalize him or herself and understand and be unconsciously different with that student. It doesn't have to be a technique or a strategy. It can be an unconscious way of being with that student. Yeah, so I do think that student that teachers often do, or I think pe professional educators across the board, I think often under downplay the value of their full experience as a teacher, their full education, quite frankly, a liberal arts education, if you want to call it that, or even a broader education, a comprehensive education, and the impact that that has on the communication, the, 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 the connection that they make with their students and with their communities and the effect of that in their teaching. I think that that's frequently downplayed, quite frankly, especially in kind of highly regimented environments where teachers are given you know, a certain period of time, they're given a very narrow set of responsibilities for a, for a, for a, for a content area, and they don't really embrace the larger, um, they, 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 when they speak, they don't embrace a larger sense of responsibility for the kids, for the kids they teach. But at the same time, they all know it does. They all know the impact that that has on them and on their students. And they, you know, and they would, they wouldn't do it otherwise. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of, it's, I, I think I'd probably call it the joy of teaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it can be actually huge for the student. It can be enormous for them. Like even one year with that one person can be so healing that it can give them resources that they didn't have before. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so tell me about where you're going next with your research or what you're studying now, what you're interested in based on kind of your accumulated experience and maybe just in general where you're heading. Just like earlier, I don't have a clear path. <laughs> that ball of yarn just occasionally rolls in a different direction. Okay, where's um, it rolling now? <laughs> well, as a result of going through this psychotherapy training, I do have just a small handful, like really just a few clients who I continue to see. Okay. And I'm also interested in just as a kind of sideline, it's not something I do for economic reasons. I'm interested oh. in working with people who are at um, transitional stages in their lives and particularly careers as well. So I've been connecting with largely younger people who are in their late teens to early 30s who are still searching and questioning paths. 
Great. Just working, working with them in a kind of coaching or mentorship sort of role. That's, that's largely what I've been interested in lately. This has been great. Let me ask you my, the question that I plan on asking all my guests, and you're my guinea pig first time asking it, but this is my question. Great. Is, what advice would you have for a young, soon-to-be-graduating-from-college professional educator who is about to enter the field? Oh, that's, that's a big question. <laughs> sure. I almost feel like not qualified to answer that in a way because I was never, I, I never did a degree in education and I never was a K to 12 educator, like in those foundational years, I never did that. Maybe the only thing I would say is be open to learning more. Uh, one thing that I saw, cause I have a, a really, good friend who you know is uh is my connection to your sister mary ellen uh -huh. from new brunswick and she is a primary school teacher and has been for a long time she has recently gone through a lot of additional courses to up her her skill level and also just her her experience as a teacher she's just been in the last, I think it was a year and a half, she was taking courses and talking to me a little bit about them, not very much, but I just thought, wow, these are so interesting, these topics. And I know that she would say, if you were to talk to Ellen, I know that she would say that it has informed her teaching in lots of ways. The continued education piece is such an important piece. So it might be attachment today it. and it might be something else in five years from now. And it's always important to keep learning about those different things that, that we're learning about. I love that. In our world. I love it. That's great. That was not a bad answer, was it? <laughs> great answer. I love it. It was great. Thanks. Well, thanks for doing this today. This was great. For me too, John. I'm, I really enjoyed doing it too. Well, thank you. We'd like to thank our guest, Kara Naiman. Thank you. And we would also like to thank the production and editorial staff and creative, uh, the creative sources that helped spur on this, the creation of this podcast. And we hope that you'll join us again in two weeks for another episode.